here we are again with First Reading, the Old Testament Lectionary Podcast, giving you insights for preaching, studying, or just pondering the first lectionary reading. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. I like that beginning. Here we are! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, friends, welcome back. The first reading this week is just about the strangest mishmash I've seen in a while. You got 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 11, 12 to 15 if you're feeling it, 16 to 20, 11 to 14 to 15 if you really want some more. So, Tim, you're the first Samuel scholar in this crew. What are you doing with this? Well, it's actually less confusing than the verse references make it look. Basically, we're looking at almost all of 1 Samuel 8, which is where the elders of Israel ask Samuel to appoint a king. With one paragraph in the middle of all of that set off as optional because it makes the reading kind of long. Mm. And then you've got that uh, additional optional tag at the end that buttons the story up with the crowning of Saul as Israel's first king in chapter 11. Okay, that's a really helpful brief little synopsis right there. This is one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. (laughs) So anyway, you're going to give us the classic first reading rundown, I'm assuming. So some context, some Hebrew stuff, pitfalls. What do you got going on? Sure, sure. Well, why don't we start with a little bit of context? So in the flow of the Deuteronomistic history, that, that block of historical narrative that runs from Joshua through 2 Kings... This chapter is kind of a key turning point. Uh, Joshua and Judges, if you look back, way back in, in the text, those books reconstruct a time in Israel's remembered history when there was no centralized permanent government. Mm. Judges um, were, were a bit like the Avengers, sort of vigilante heroes who popped up when there was a great need and then just faded back into the woodwork. Did they get great outfits as well? I think so. I think so. But they weren't kings, with the exception of Abimelech, but nobody counts him. So (laughs) it's not until 1 Samuel 9 that we meet Israel's first king, Saul, and we read the story of his rise to power. So the chapter before our lectionary passage this week for Samuel 8 is that pivot point right before this major shift in governance that's going to dominate the rest of Israel's story until the exile. Poor Abimelech, nobody counts him. I know, but he was kind of an ass. <laughs> I don't know, maybe I'll cut that out. No, keep it in. <laughs> tell, it like, tell it like it is, Tim, tell it like it is. Uh, now, something important that's often missed by casual readers who have sort of preconceived notions about the consistency of Scripture is that there are actually two major perspectives on this idea of monarchic government that are both present in these texts. One thread is just really jazzed about kings. Before the monarchy, everyone did whatever was right in their own eyes, and anarchic chaos was the norm. But thankfully, then Saul came and unified the tribes, and David established Israel's national sovereignty by beating back the Philistines. Solomon is is portrayed as a great sage who builds God's house and fortifies cities and expands the territory to fulfill God's promise. Mm. And even after the division of the kingdom, good kings are those that follow God's law and uphold justice and order. That thread sees this moment of transition as the beginning of Israel's golden age, the golden age of the great kings. Mm. But... There's another thread that's woven through this whole history that says, yeah, 
I don't know about this whole monarchy thing. Mm. What's wrong with having God as our king? Don't we have priests and prophets? Who needs kings? After all, they just suck up power and exploit the people. They're the ones who lead the nation into idolatry and ultimately into the hands of the enemies. Mm. So 1 Samuel 8 is a part of that second thread. It frames the people's demand for a king as a rejection of God. And Samuel's speech gives this whole litany of the abuses of power and the exploitation of the people that's bound to happen if they go through with this plan to transition to a monarchy. But the elders are portrayed just like toddlers in this story. They're jealous of their neighbors. We <laughs> want to be like everyone else. Give <laughs> us a king. Yeah, this is one of the most heartbreaking moments in scripture when God says, listen to them. It is not you they've rejected. They have rejected me. It's like the heartbreak of the divine ruler is palpable. Mm -hmm. You get this sense of God's fine then, whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's some heartbreak there on God's yeah. part. Yeah, exactly. So, so in our story here, the move toward monarchy is described as a divine condescension to a foolish move on the part of the people. Mm. I think that's a really interesting theological revision of history. Mm. You know, this was probably written during the Babylonian exile or afterward, and it looks at the ultimate failure of the Israelite and Judahite monarchies and says, you know what? This was not God's fault. This is not God's responsibility. Mm. After all, way back at the beginning, this whole monarchy thing wasn't even God's idea. Mm. It was your idea. It was Israel's <laughs> idea and a rejection of God's original offer to be their sole leader. Mm. So of course the monarchy failed. We should have just stuck with God as our leader. And maybe we can do that now. So you're reading two historical layers on this text. The first layer that kind of talks about the the events and the second layer that looks at them in light of national disaster mm -hmm, and says, mm -hmm. you know what? Our national disaster has two options. Either it was God's fault or it wasn't God's fault. And and you're reading this text as like a, a theodicy, like a defense of God in light of that trauma of the national disaster of the fall of Judah and exile. Exactly. And also as a critique of movements at the time of the writing that would have wanted to reestablish that Judahite monarchy. Mm. This is a text that says, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's mm. not do that again. We're better off leaving the political stuff to the Persians and focusing on our identity as a people with our allegiance to God's law and devotion to the temple being our unifying glue. So I could see this, you know, I've, I think I've heard this too as a sermon about kind of preaching, we shouldn't put our trust in human leaders, but only in God alone. And in the uh, hyper-politicized world that we live in right now, the United States, I could see that being a really relevant message. Oh yeah, totally. And, and in a way, that's the central line of thought in this text. But I think there's also a preaching pitfall that's embedded in that kind of a, a sermon I, I think we have to read this thread of anti-monarchic historical rhetoric in a biblical context that also celebrates the kings of Israel and Judah and sees them as God's anointed. Mm. That, that messianic thread, Messiah just means anointed one, a title for kings, that messianic thread also continued in the post-exilic era with at least one attempt at reestablishing the Davidic dynasty in Zerubbabel. Mm. 
And this is the thread of tradition that was picked up in the Maccabean era and ultimately by the early Christians who saw Jesus as God's anointed one, God's Messiah, that is a kind of king. They called Jesus Lord, which is first of all a royal title, though it came also to have divine connotations. But anyway, if we just focus on this anti-monarchic mood in 1 Samuel 8 in our sermon, then as much as it is true that we should trust God and not put our trust in human leaders— we would be ignoring that whole other voice and using the Bible in a sort of proof texty way by singling out just this one angle. You know, I think that's a really great point, especially because um, just having come through Easter and Holy Week, when we get to, you know, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, the sermons that usually get preached and that I've preached myself are everybody was waiting for God to restore the kingdom of Israel at this point. And what you're lifting up is like, well, a group of people were. But there was also a very important and very strong thread of tradition that was not, that thought that the reestablishment of the um, earthly monarchy of Israel was not actually God's plan and God's way to go. And that, that helpfully, I think, problematizes maybe our simplistic understanding of what people were hoping for at Jesus' time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and to, to take sort of a Jewish reading of the scriptures, there are often these multiple ideas that are just mm. left left in the text and left in intention without having to resolve to one side or the other. Yeah, absolutely. Polyphonic is one of my favorite words about the Bible. Multiple, oh, you know Polly. I do. Yeah, she's a great girl. Multiple <laughs> voices, polyphonic. So anyway, how would you how would you encourage preachers to do a more polyphonic reading of this text, a more well-rounded reading? Mm. Well, I mean, I don't think that the sermon idea that we've already floated is wrong. I just think that we could fill it out with a little bit of nuance. Mm-hmm. So in, instead of just taking on that rhetoric of the author, that, that human rule is bad and, and is a rejection of God, I think we can drill down into the reasoning behind that kind of rhetoric. Mm-hmm. For example, the purveyors of this thread in the text were very concerned about the corruption of powerful leaders. Mm-hmm. Even before the establishment of the monarchy, we read stories in 1 Samuel about the failure of a priestly dynasty and the corruption of Eli's sons at Shiloh. Mm-hmm. And then we read about the failure of the judgeship dynasty and the corruption of Samuel's sons in Beersheba. Mm. This sort of self-serving, exploitative leadership is what prompts the elders to shift towards what they perceive as the stability of a monarchy like the nations around them. Mm. But Samuel tries to warn them that kings too, and even more than priests and judges, tend to consolidate power and exploit the people and their resources. Mm. So there's a message here about the nature of power and the danger of promoting an imbalance in power. Mm-hmm. A sermon could uh, helpfully key in on this line of thinking and discuss the dangers of power imbalances in many contexts. Not just in governments, but also in social structures, like like the embedded imbalance of white supremacy in so much of American society, mm-hmm. and even the risks of power imbalances in personal relationships. Yeah, absolutely. I could see that being a really helpful sermon angle. The, the other issue that I'd point to that's under the surface of our passage is the motivation of fear that, in addition to corruption, prompts this request for a king. Yeah, In verse 20, the people disregard Samuel's warnings because they want to be 
like the other nations with a king who can go out before us and fight our battles. In other words, they see themselves in an arms race with their neighbors. Mm. And they need someone who can centralize their military in order to compete with the forces of hostile neighbors. Now, in the moment, that, that sounds fairly reasonable. But looking backwards from the exile, the centralization of the military just made them more of a target for world empires against whom they didn't even stand a chance, even with several attempts at alliances and various political schemes. And in the pursuit of some fleeting sense of national security, the people handed over sons as soldiers, daughters as slaves, land and crops and mineral rights, and fields and vineyards and orchards and livestock, and even their own bodies as conscripted laborers. If you want a little a little nugget of Hebrew insight in this passage, trace the numerous occurrences of the word yikach, he will take, mm. in this short paragraph. They were so afraid that they were willing to let a king take and take and take, all in the name of so-called national security, that in the end never historically materialized for them. Mm. A sermon could bring out this theme as well and reflect on the way that national security often gets tossed around as a carte blanche for all sorts of injustices and taking and taking and taking, especially from vulnerable populations, immigrants, refugees, the poor, communities of color, and as an excuse for unbridled military spending to the neglect of more humane needs. So I guess what I'm saying is, preachers, you, you don't need to throw out all human government as a rejection of God's rule mm. or close your eyes to the good that governments can do and the ways that God can and does use human leaders in the pursuit of the common good. But passages like 1 Samuel 8 are, are kind of like the warning label that comes along with such human systems of leadership. Leaders need accountability, not absolute power. And national security through militarism is a sort of phantom hope that often leads to exploitation of the vulnerable, or at least that's my take on it. Mm. At any rate, those are a couple potential angles into this narrative for preachers. Yeah, I think this whole idea of power and of um, almost an, an idolization of security is a mm -hmm. really interesting way to go. And you could preach that as multiple levels. You know, you could preach that at a national level. You can preach that on a, a familial or an individual level as well. You know, what do we sacrifice in the name of security? And are we conscious and intentional about those sacrifices that we make? So yeah, great angles here. I mean, this is just a fantastic text and um, I think you did a great job with it. So thanks, Tim. Sure. Well, folks, let us know. Let us know if this worked out for you, if this is something you preached or ran with and, and how it went. Uh, we are on the Book of Faces. We also have a website, firstreadingpodcast.com, and we'd love to hear from you. So check us out there, download some past episodes, and uh, if you liked what you heard, I don't know, send us along to your bishop maybe. Maybe throw us in a newsletter so that your parishioners who are interested in deeper biblical stuff can start listening as well. We'd love to expand this venture as far as it can go. But until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Thanks for listening. <laughs>